This particular passage of scripture, I will um, just warn you ahead of time, is one of those sobering times in God's word. So turn to Mark chapter 15. And out of the gate, I can tell you that oftentimes sermons are full of different ways to pull you back into the lesson or the theme through jokes and stories. What we're going to read this morning is the only anchor that we'll need, I hope, to hear from God and to trust that his word is drawing us to himself this morning. So uh, if you have a Bible, open to it, because we're going to cover a lot of scripture. And as we go through it, uh, it is the scripture. It is the word that we're going to be reading and going through together that will be of only value, especially this morning. And just to give you a preview of where we're going, it really... And I love when this happens. The, the, the section of scripture that we're reading this morning has a few reference points to where we're at as a world and just this day that we're celebrating. Um, the first, I can just kind of take a poll, an informal poll. How many of you watched just about a week ago, there was a coronation of a king named King Charles III. And uh, many people, maybe here, uh, but around the world, that was kind of a worldwide event because it doesn't happen often, but there is still an existing monarchy that has just ushered in a new monarch to the throne. And when that happens, there is a ceremony, a coronation, where he takes his seat of honor and everyone around him watches that happen because there's something about that moment that gives us a reference point as people to the way God created us for a king. And that is something that I mentioned this morning because although at least for this little monarch, it hasn't happened for 70 years, it happened right at the exact same time that we are going to be studying the coronation of Christ. Everything that we've been looking at in the gospel of Mark is pointing us to the reality that Christ is not just a miracle worker, he is not just a teacher, he is not just filled with wisdom that confounds the wise and authority that confounds those who are in charge, but he is in fact sent into the world to establish the kingdom of God and he himself as king. And this morning we look at his coronation. And it will be worth pointing out how upside down of a kingdom that our Lord, the king that we already sang to with kingly praise this morning, takes his throne compared to every other way that you assume power and honor in this world. And the other reference point in this story as we get to the very end is this happens to be one of those stories in the Bible where there are a certain group of women and mothers who find a place of honor. So we have two stories happening at once. As we get all the way to the end of the story, there will be a moment for our, as we've already prayed and, and, and I hope honored the day that our culture celebrates for this office that God has given to his glory. Um, as we get to the end, we'll see a strange and powerful honoring of women at the end of this story. But it starts in Matthew chapter 15, verse 16. Read along with me. It says, then the soldiers led him away into the, into the hall called Praetorium. 
and they called together the whole garrison. We'll stop there just to pick up where we left off. Last week, we were in Mark chapter 14. A lot has happened in a short amount of time from last week's Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ is crying out to the Father, giving us this model prayer for the time of pressing, and he submits his desire to not have to go through the agony of the cross before the Father's plan. Nevertheless, your will be done, and the will of the Father from the garden to this point, is that he would, in fact, be led to a betrayal, a trial, and a verdict for death. And that is why, we, as we started this, it says, then the soldiers led him away. He has left Pilate's uh, verdict. He left it to the mob, and they yelled, crucify. Pilate gave them another out where two criminals were, were presented, one being Christ, who did nothing wrong. Pilate points that out. One being Barabbas, who was a common criminal. And the crowd chose Barabbas. And now, through all of this leading up to the mission that Christ is on to establish his throne in an entirely different way than any other throne with honor and glory and coronation has ever, be, has ever been established, it says they lead him away from all of those uh, stories leading up to this. And what do they do? The soldiers take him, and it says they clothed him with purple, the color of royalty. And they tw twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. He has been indicted for trying to be king in the false accusations of the Pharisees that he himself wanted to be the Caesar of Rome. And now the, the garrison or the Roman uh, soldiers who are in charge with taking him away are going to use this opportunity to mock who they see as someone that's a deserving of death as a false king. And throughout this story, it is the coronation of Christ in all of the strangest ways because the theme is all of these people looking at Christ and mocking him for his kingdom. And they hail him, king of the Jews, and they laugh at him. And then it goes on to say, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, bowing the knee, and they worshiped him. Now, I want to look at some of the details of that. We're going to get all the way to the end of the story, so we are doing a bit of a flyover. But all of these little details, they hit him with a reed. They put a crown of thorns on his head, a, a cloak of purple. They bend their knee to him. They are essentially giving a mockery of a coronation. And every detail that they cover, in some ways, is still the way kings are coronated today. And in fact, I... I I think we'll share maybe a couple pictures, at least one. This is what they are mocking him or presenting him to look like. This is King Charles III. This happened just last week. That is all of the things that they adorned him with in a way to make fun of him, to basically say, you think you're a king and you're not. They were essentially play acting what we just saw last week. You see a crown. You see a scepter, you see the cloak of purple, and you see it ordained in glory. So if you haven't watched the coronation, like my, myself, I hadn't watched it, but feel free to watch it just to contrast what we're studying with the king or the Christ Jesus to all of the ways that coronations look completely different. 
And throughout this, we will be presented with a decision to make about what is the actual way to the throne in the kingdom of God, and what is the way to the throne symbolized through the kingdoms of this world. And what is the crown that Jesus wears? It says that he wears a crown of thorns. Throughout this survey of all of the ways that Jesus will be presented as king in a mockery, there will be things that man intends for evil that God actually uses to remind all of us what kind of king he is. And the interesting part of the first play acting of his coronation is that they gave him a crown of thorns, no doubt in their minds, meant to torture him further, meant to draw the blood from his forehead. And yet, what does the crown of thorns take us all the way back to? The original curse. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. As God is cursing man for disobeying and creating a separation from between the holiness of God and the unrighteousness of man and their disobedience, he puts a curse on all of creation. It is this curse that we still find ourselves tangled in to this day, and it is this curse that God sent his son on a mission to break. And how is this curse symbolized? Genesis chapter 3. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor. You're going to farm. You're going to sweat under the hot sun. You're going to have to toil. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. The thorns of creation are a reminder for all of us when we reach into the plant and we get the, the, the scraping of the arm that creation itself is cursed, that the good creation that God made for man and woman to enjoy for, with him forever has gone awry, and the thorn is the symbol of that. Could have been anything. He could have said to them, I'm cursing you with hurricanes and pandemics and earthquakes, which are all true. The good creation God made is broken, and he has sent his Savior of the world to reverse that brokenness and turn it into redemption, and yet it is with the thorn that he reminds them in Genesis, because in his plan of redemption, there would be a coronation where the curse would be worn on his head, and it was a curse of thorns, a symbol for all of us to see our king as altogether different in what he came to accomplish. And then it goes on to say in verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him. It was all just an act to further ridicule and shame him. They put his clothes on him. They, they put back the clothes that he had worn in his trial and they led him out to crucify him. Crucifixion. Something that is almost we are almost numb to it because it has become a symbol of the Christian faith to see the cross as a beacon of hope. But crucifixion and the cross that awaits Christ to hang on is in fact the greatest form of torture that had ever been invented up until this point. In fact, we get our word excruciating from the same root word crucifix. What was waiting Christ when we looked at all of his prayers that the cup would pass from him, was in fact a crucifixion, a method of torture to take his life from him as a penalty of sin. And now they're going to go through the coronation procession. 
They're taking him from the place where they had been mocking him, in the courts where Pilate had delivered the verdict and the mob had turned on him, and now they're going to walk him towards the place where the cross will be planted for him to hang. It says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Latin word here is how we get our word Calvary. So welcome to Golgotha Chapel this morning. This is how we find this place that they led Christ to hang on the cross for the sin of the world. We have built our entire identity around this moment that they took him to a place to hang. And again, we get a contrast in the processional, don't we? A processional is mostly supposed to be the, 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 the way that you are honored until the, the seat of power is assumed. And if we contrast it once again, for those of you who have ever seen a monarch take his throne through a processional or dating back to just last week, what do we find in King Charles? He went from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey. And about a mile of twists and turns where the crowds watched him and they glanced at him and they looked at him with honor and they took their pictures. And what did he ride in? A golden chariot worth millions of dollars drawn by six beautiful horses. And it is the picture of how this world comes to power when you are seen as the center of wealth and fanfare and riches and power. It only makes sense that you would be the one to sit in the seat of power. And what is the processional of our king? The processional is that he is mocked, he's ridiculed, he is beat, and then he is placed upon his shoulders a wooden cross. There is no chariot. There is no donkey awaiting him like Palm Sunday. He is asked to pick up his own cross and to carry it to the place of a skull, a reminder that death awaits him, and he is so weak and he is so beaten that they had to take a common pilgrim off the streets to help him. There are, there's no one opening the doors for him. There's no one polishing his shoes and getting him ready for his big day. There is a commoner taken off the street to carry a cross that he was too weak to bear on his own. And as we go through this, we'll think of all sorts of ways that Christ's teaching come into full technicolor. We'll remember in Mark chapter 8, as he told his disciples of this very moment, that the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, he is going to be ridiculed, he is going to be beat, he is going to be hung on a cross, and he is going to die on the third day. And if they heard this sermon, they would think that all of this was crazy. Peter himself said, heaven forbid, that is not the coronation of our king. And yet Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me, pick up your own cross. Surely Jesus referencing this moment where the cross must be carried in the procession of a criminal to pay for the crimes that have violated the authority of Rome. And now we get a picture of someone picking up a cross in discipleship of Christ. It says, Then they gave him wine, verse 23, 
mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Crucifixion was not only meant to be a picture of torture, a device for criminals to be deathly afraid of, lest you suffer the fate of hanging on a wooden cross with your limbs pierced by nails. It was also a billboard against insurrection. It was a very public way for someone to be tortured and to die so that any of you who were thinking of being a zealot and fighting for your rights apart from the taxation and the authority of Rome over your life, every once in a while you would walk by this place of the skull and get a reminder not to disobey. And for that effect, it was worthwhile for the Romans to keep you alive just a little bit longer. So it is with wine and myrrh to drink that your senses can be dulled just enough to give you the strength to pull yourself up and continue to breathe so that this free advertising for the authority of Rome could last a little longer. And it says that Jesus did not take it. Why? As we wrestled with in a garden of suffering, the place of pressing, the Gethsemane moment where he is crying out to the Father, if it is possible to take this cup from me, let it pass, and yet nevertheless your will be done. In this moment, we are reminded that we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our moment of darkness. The agony and the suffering that awaited him was the agony of compassion and sympathy to everyone who pleased for him to hear our cry. And that sympathy knows no anesthetics. It knows no Novocaine. It knows no bourbon or whiskey or wine that would dull the senses. He went to the depths of suffering that no one listening to the free offer of salvation of Christ on the cross sympathizing with your weakness would ever be able to hold suffering apart from him against him. He knows exactly what we all go through and he chose to experience it to its depths. Verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. I can't help but continue the contrast of a, of a coronation. It said of the coronation last week for uh, the king of England that it was a short ride from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, but it was 70 years in the making. And he held on for a long time as his mother, who occupied the throne, kept on living. Bless her soul. Happy Mother's Day to King Charles. <laughs> and yet, what do we have in this moment where soldiers are casting lots for the common clothes of what they believe to be a prisoner deserving of death? We have the fulfillment of the messianic psalm that was generations in the making that God proclaimed through the wisdom writing of the prophetic psalm that his clothes, his Messiah would come and his coronation would, would be so different than that of a king with a gold crown and a gold scepter and a gold chariot that his clothes would be so common that people would cast lots for it. They're worth nothing. They're worth a game of rock, paper, scissors. The 
Now, we're not taxpayers to the, the, the British Empire, so we don't have to be annoyed by this, but the coronation of Charles cost $125 million to honor a person taking the throne of power. Imagine the money that is thrown out the honoring of the kings of our world. And then imagine the king of kings in the beginning with God, was God, spoke the universe into existence, and he comes with nothing but clothes that would be worth a game of gambling amongst those who were there to execute him. And now we come to a part that in a sense we think about in our weekly worship every time we have our order of service that ends where we hold a cup representing his blood and we hold the bread representing his body. In fact, it is what we are about to do. And just as sure as a cross can be a symbol of hope and not a device by which the wrath of God dealt with sin, surely we can take communion as something we do on a Sunday morning before we go to brunch. And yet it is in our journey through the word that from time to time again we re-anchor in the depths of God's love displayed in the depths of Christ's suffering. It says in Mark chapter 15, verse 25, Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. They have nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. And the inscription of his accusation was written above. The king of the Jews, what man intends for evil, God will use as a proclamation of not just good, but the greatest news that the world has ever heard. They write on an old wooden board, king of the Jews, as a way to mock him further. Look what he got put to death for. Anybody else want to try to be the king of the Jews other than Caesar? And yet, they were all together more aligned with reality than they ever thought to imagine. He was, in fact, the king. John gives us further details, which is worth pointing out. In John chapter 19, it says that they wrote this statement, King of the Jews, in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. And in doing this, it was the advertising for all who may think to disobey, careful who you claim to be king. And it was also advertisement for this moment that he was not, in fact, just king of the Jews. He was, in fact, sent into the world to redeem every tribe and every tongue and every nation represented in the languages of their day. And so we have a king who is suffering with a crown of thorns and nails in his hands and his feet, hanging from a cross, representing salvation from the world. And we have hundreds of millions of dollars spent to honor someone who is the king of an island. His dominion and his reign, that is the monarch of England, will rise and it will fall like the flowers of the field. And the only reason I'm grateful for the recent coronation is because most of you will probably have no reference point to any of them other than this one. Because they come and they go. 
time and time and time again. You can be the king for a season. You can be the king for a portion. You can be the king for some. But there is only one king whose dominion and reign is for the world. And it is the king of kings. Verse 27, with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. A fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, a coronation that was generations in the making, that God had declared through the prophecies and the oracles of his word that this day was coming and this king's coronation would not be at the seat of power with his general on his left and his queen on his right. It would not be the dignitaries and the ambassadors and all of the seats of power that we think of. He would be sitting in the midst of transgressors, of robbers. It's altogether different. In what we saw last week, it is altogether different in the expectations of those who were following him to Jerusalem for this very mission. We'll remember in Mark chapter 10, and we studied the difference between the power that Jesus came to serve us in and the power that we so often think of for ourselves. The lesson of James and John. As they came to Jesus, they said, we got a request for you. He said, ask anything. He said, well, we'd like to sit on your left and your right. If you don't mind, we've been following you all this way. We're kind of the, the inner circle. And we just want to make sure that we... Uh, we, we get our assignments before you give them away. Left and right would be a great place to sit. Vice President, Secretary of State, left and right. Lead pastor, chief elder, the, the chief missionary. There's seats of power and you want to be in them. And who sits to the left and right? Well, Jesus gave a preview. He said, you cannot drink of the cup that I will drink of that will be required for you to be in my left and my right. To his left and his right was a sinner and a transgressor. Jesus came to identify not with those at the very top of power, but those at the very bottom of sin. He came not to save the well. They have no need of a physician, but he came to redeem the lost. And in his coronation, he sits with those he came for. Our king is coming to redeem the lost. And we get the coronation crowds in Matthew or Mark chapter 15, verse 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross, challenging him, the one who's done great things. Well, this is your hour, do great things. Likewise, not just the passerbys, not just those who were part of the mob that yelled crucify, but likewise the chief priests also, mocking him among themselves and the scribes. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. You know, in, in some ways, this is the real world in the expectations we have of power. Let's see what you have. 
If you want to be great in this world, show us your riches, show us your wisdom, show us your ability to conquer, and then we will bestow upon you the crown of glory. Show us what you got, king. And in some ways, we say once again what men intended as evil. Hardening their hearts from the one who came to save them and mocking him. God actually uses for good. The statement that they said was more true than they realized. Others he saved and himself he cannot. Maybe to make it even more accurate, others he saved, himself he would not. Because surely the miracle worker who had saved others, who had shown power with a word to calm the sea, to cast out legions of demons, to raise the dead to life, surely he could save himself. And yet, because of his submission to the will of the Father, he did save others, but he would not save himself. For him to come off the cross means the condemnation of those who mock him. So grateful that God has given us his grace that we would be in the company of those who see him as a suffering savior for our souls. And yet, I know even as you preach a crowd this size, surely some of you verbally or in your heart still mock him as unable to save still do not see him as a savior who can save others, yourself included, and you have not fully confessed who he is and who he claims to be, a king. And again, Mark will continue to overlay this whole story with the reference of his kingship. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, it says, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, you may be thinking of those who crucified next to him reviling him. There is, of course, one who repents and turns, the thief on the cross. Not mentioned here. Mentioned here is a story of absolute mockery for all who see him, questioning his authority to save because he does not save himself. And as we've stated, he chooses to stay on the cross so that he can be a substitution for our sin. And as we've also already stated, it is also a fulfillment of all of the teachings of Christ in this moment. Pick up your cross and follow me. He picks up his cross. And one of the bedrock foundations of his teaching is the love of God and the love of others. And the love of others is not just loving those who love you back. Anybody can do that. It's very easy to love people that make you laugh, give you a helping hand, and you get to call friends. But Jesus says the true love is the love of your enemies. The love of those who would mock you in your hour of need. The love of those who would wish death upon you. And love displayed ultimately in the power of forgiveness. Luke's gospel tells us that around this moment of the cross and the mockery of all the passerbyers and the religious leaders, Christ cries out, Father, forgive them. 
for they do not know what they're doing. This is beginning the culmination of what makes Christ king of all. It is because he is the king of the glory of God and the God who calls himself love. And his love is displayed with boundaries that break our mind. Love, forgiveness of those who have nailed him to the cross and mock him. And now disciples of Christ. I speak to the disciples of Christ here, those who have accepted the free gift of his forgiveness for the times you knew not what you were doing. And you have accepted the call to pick up your own cross and to follow him despite your own dreams and designs for your life. And you are a disciple of Christ. Be careful of the boundaries that we place on our forgiveness. Of course, we live in a time where there's so much interest in the divides of our country and our churches and our peoples and our neighbors and people have hurt other people and that is not unlike any other time. And some will say that there's good, healthy boundaries. I don't want to violate that. But if you are looking to Christ as a disciple of Christ, remember this moment in your life. Those who have hurt you, those who have broken your heart, those who have wished harm upon you. Remember Christ on the cross. He says, Father, forgive everyone but them. He says, Father, silence their mockery and do away with them so that I can get back to the mission of loving you and being the Savior of the world. He says, Father, forgive them. And we think of the gospel good news that God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As you begin in every Bible story to try to find yourself in the story, every single one of us in our sin have mocked the, Christ, the cross of Christ. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. Now in the sixth hour, this is noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I'm going to save any commentary I have about this verse for the final worship song that we're going to sing. As we hold the communion elements in our hand, we are going to sing a song that I cannot think of a better way to describe what's happening in the scripture that we're studying this morning. All hail King Jesus. So I'll just preview that song with the beginning. The verses say, there was a moment when the lights went out, when the death had claimed its victory when the king of love had given up his life. It was the darkest day in history. The lights went out for three hours. Creation goes black. Hold on to this moment as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion. Then it says, verse 33, In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We saw it in the garden. We see it again now. Jesus understands the deepest heartbreak of your life. And if you have ever heard John chapter 3, verse 16, preached as the gospel to save your soul, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe would not perish. You will not die in your sins. You can be redeemed and given new life. 
It is this moment that makes that verse possible. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That God forsook his own son so he could keep you as part of his family. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer in scripture and in reality is so so that sin could be dealt with by a holy God. So that the wrath of God could be poured out on the cross of Christ and the holiness of God would completely separate that sin. It says in verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him in a drink saying, let him alone, let's see if Elijah will come take him down. As we saw throughout Mark, everyone looking at that prophecy in Malachi that Elijah would precede the Messiah were wondering, is it John the Baptist? Is Jesus himself Elijah? Is Elijah going to precede this moment on the cross? And in all of their hyper-focus in the fulfillment of prophecy, they miss the Savior of the world standing in front of them. I love studying theology and thinking about when and how and what God is up to in our times, but may we never lose Christ in front of us. We get so zoomed into the way that God is mechanically working through prophecy and fulfillment that we lose the heart of compassion and the love of God with Christ in front of us. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. The Son of God entering into death. Jesus Christ empties himself of the perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven, and he comes so that he could be clothed in incorruptible flesh and put it into the grave. He breathes his last. We are considering this every time we hold communion, that God sent his son to die. And we're also considering this as the pinnacle moment of the coronation of our king. This is where the coronation story begins to turn towards its end, and then he will go into a victory over death. Yesterday, these seats were filled with people celebrating celebrating the death of one of our dear brothers in Christ. One of our ushers used to stand right by those doors. Tom stood right here and led us in a time of worship. And somehow, in the upside-down world, it dawned on me that the believer's coronation, where we receive honor from God and the seat of glory next to the Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father, is not in this life. It is when we breathe our last. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And we now have the picture of power in the world. If you think that your coronation and your place of honor is going to come in the corner office through the car that you buy, through the amazing achievements of this life, you are looking for King Charles and serve him. But if you realize that your place of honor will come the day that you die and meet Christ face to face, you are beginning to take on the model set before us by Christ. It is when he breathes his last. The veil is torn. 
Charles hides behind the palace walls. We have access to the Father in heaven. And then a centurion cries out and says, because of the way he died, we know that he is the Son of God. The pinnacle of our whole study. And now as we begin to worship, we, we place just one moment to recognize in this story a little moment for the day. It says at the very end, there were also women looking from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and, and Josie and Salome. They followed him and ministered to him. John tells us that also one in that group was Mary the mother of Jesus herself. As we think about what this tells us about our discipleship, our call to follow Jesus, not for today and not for the successes of this world that God will freely give and take away, but for the day that we meet him face to face where our true glory awaits. I also consider the coronation guests of honor. 2,000 people that Charles invited with a special invitation. 4,000 troops. 1,000 musicians. And at the coronation of Christ, who do we get? We get women and mothers. They were the only ones. And so as we honor our king, we remember how God chose his guests of honor. He chooses the women and the mothers to be this unending reminder of the love of God there until the very end. For every one of you, you are a child of a mother, and your mother is God's gift to you to say, I have someone in your life who will love you to the very end. He himself had a mother that was there at the very end. And so today we are going to sing a song to praise Jesus as King and be mindful just as we leave this place honoring mothers that we thank God for the way that every single one of us came into this world through the sacrifice of a mom who in the midst of the hardest days of our lives will be there until the end.